Hi friends, Pastor Doug Batchelor here, and it is a joy to return with you and to be part of this virtual camp meeting for the Kentucky-Tennessee Conference. And I'm glad that we could be able to meet this way and study God's Word. We know that there's a lot of you that may be in your homes or some that are gathered in small groups that are uh, participating in this. And, and we pray that we can all be uh, transformed by the Word of God and just drawn together in our oneness in Christ. The theme this week, of course, we're dealing with the subject of we would see Jesus, uh, keeping our eyes on Jesus. And this is actually a favorite theme of mine that I've dwelt on for years. And so I'm just happy to be able to share a few studies with you on this subject. But before we get to our study for today, I'd just like to have a word of prayer with you. Father in heaven, I ask that you just be with us now as we open your word, as we focus on the truth of fixing our eyes on Jesus, Lord, and I pray that we can experience that transformation. Uh, please bless all those that are watching. Be with me as I share. We pray that the Holy Spirit and the power of the word will come through and uh, do its good work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Message today is very simply, changed by beholding. And it's based upon this verse here in 2 Corinthians 3, where he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, here it is, are being transformed. That word there is metamorpho. It's like where you get the word metamorphosis. We're being changed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. There's a metamorphosis that takes place that is a miracle that is hard to comprehend. When we fix our eyes on Jesus and we follow him, he transforms our characters. He demonstrated this as he walked three and a half years with the apostles, with the exception of Judas, who would not soften his heart. The other disciples were transformed by exposure to Jesus and by the love of Christ. And by the way, that doesn't just happen when Jesus walked on the earth 3,000 or 2,000 years ago. It happens today as we walk with the Lord. And uh, we experience this, this metamorphosis. You know, I, uh, I love doing Amazing Facts, you know, for the Amazing Facts TV program, and we record a lot of interesting facts. I still am amazed by something that may seem a little passe, but how a, a, a little seed underneath a leaf hatches out into a caterpillar. It's a little teeny worm, a worm with a voracious appetite. And it just begins to very conveniently eat the leaves that it was born on. And it eats and it eats and it eats and it grows several thousand times its original size. I don't know if there's any creature in nature that grows as quickly as a caterpillar that just continually eats and kind of sheds off his old skin and eats again and sheds off his old skin until they get to a certain point in their development. And that worm with many legs, little stubby legs, and, and uh, crawling around, he hangs from a thread, builds a cocoon, develops into a chrysalis, and then it goes through this metamorpho, this transformation where all of its internal chemistry, the cells just sort of come apart into this virtual chemical soup and they reassemble 
into a whole different machine. And it is a miracle. How does, you know, those who believe in evolution, I don't know how they can explain this, but how does that happen where a worm that crawls around suddenly turns into a creature with delicate long legs instead of little stubby ones, a different number of legs, and these antenna and beautiful delicate wings, and it has aerodynamic design, and instead of chewing on leaves, now it's drinking nectar. Everything about it seems different. It's gone through a metamorphosis, and this is the word that we find. How does that happen? It says, we are changed by beholding. As we continue to look to Jesus, something miraculous happens. Have you ever noticed they say that uh, <clears throat> after a while, people start to look like their spouse? You know, folks that have been married for 50 years, you can almost tell which couple goes with who because they start to look alike. They even dress a little bit alike. And I saw a very, uh, a very funny advertising campaign by a pet food company where it showed owners and their pets and it showed how much owners look like their pets after a while and uh, you know you've got this uh, this girl that's got her hair she's got her hair and it's curly hair and pigtails and she's got brown eyes and she's next to a poodle that's got look like pigtails and brown eyes and you got this gentleman he's kind of short and stubby and he's got big jowls and he's next to his boxer dog and it was amazing how they were able to pair off the animals and the pets, and they look just like each other. Well, that, of course, was staged, but it is true that we are transformed by beholding. And as we continue to, to look at people, um, we start to adopt their behaviors. They say the three most important words in parenting are example, example, example. And they say in real estate, there's three words. It's location, location, location. If you're going to be a parent, you want to be a good example. Because in spite of what you say, children never fail to imitate you. And how often I've heard someone say, you know, I can't believe I end up saying the same things my parents said to me, I say to my kids. Um, even in spite of trying to resist it, we end up to some extent becoming like those that are around us when we grow up. We start to model their behavior. This is why people that grow up in China speak Mandarin. It's what they hear when they grow up, they adopt it. And uh, people in Russia speak Russian. And it's true not only in the languages that you hear, but it's true in the behavior. The more that we hear the word of God, the more that transforms us. And so as parents, you also want to be very careful about the example you set for your kids because they will model you. You know, they found out that um, <clears throat> in the early stages of uh, a creature's life, and not with every creature, but there are certain creatures like ducks and maybe some others and geese, that uh, they bond with whatever they see shortly after they're born. It'll happen with a little deer. If a deer is born and the first thing it sees is the family dog, that deer will start to follow the dog around. And uh, they just, they're wired that way. It's this bonding um, imprinting that happens. That's the word I guess I'm looking for. Now, I remember one time my wife and I, we were uh, on a kayak trip with some friends on the Eel River many years ago. And after we settled down for uh, camp for the night, we spent several days kayaking down the Eel River. We were camping one night, Karen and I went for a walk, 
And we were scared by a very large elk that took off. And then we saw, not long after that, we heard a little chirping noise. We heard this beep, 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 beep. And we thought, what is that? It's not an insect, but it was very faint. And we walked over, and we saw in a little pool next to the river, there was a little bitty duck that looked like it had just hatched out. And we looked around. We didn't see a nest. We didn't see any remnants of an egg. We didn't see any other ducklings. I know they usually travel together. We didn't see a mother duck anywhere. Sometimes they're flying off in the distance or circling. And I thought, this is the cutest thing I think I've ever seen. And I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have done this, but I said, we got to show the other people in the camp. This is the cutest thing. And we picked up the little duck. At first, it kind of ran from us, but it was easy to catch. Picked it up. We went walking back to camp. We showed the other people in the camp this cute little baby, furry, little fuzzball of a baby duck that's beep, 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 beep. And uh, pretty soon, you know, we didn't know what to do. We brought him back down to the water, and it followed us back up to the camp, hopping, peeping after us. And we thought, oh, it's scared. It's lonely. So it spent the night with us, and we had fun. The little duck was going from one camper to another, but he mostly stuck with Karen and I because we're the ones that first found it, and he had kind of bonded. He had that imprinting that happened. We tried to find some little bugs or something, little baby snails for him to eat or something. And, and uh, the next day we realized, all right, we got to continue our camping trip. Uh, we can't take this baby duck with us. It's going to, you know, we're going through rough rapids and things and it get hurt in our camping gear. There's just no practical way to do it. So we said, we'll just hope and pray that its mother finds it. And we finally got all packed up. We launched our kayaks off into the river. And uh, poor little duck, it was peeping after us. Beep, 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 beep. It jumped off into the river, and it started to paddle after us. And I was amazed how quick that little thing could swim. And, you know, it was swimming like a duck. And uh, it swam up, and it jumped up on, I don't know how it did it, but it managed to hop up on the top of our kayak, and it rode like a baby duck does on its mother's tail, and rode up on the front of our kayak as we were going down the rapids. But then we went through some rough rapids, and it got washed off. We thought, oh, that's the end of that. But you know, ducks, I guess God made them where they float pretty good. He came popping out at the other end of the rapids, and he was just fine. Came back, hopped up on our, our kayak, and we could not shake that little thing. It had bonded with us. It was identifying with us and it was going to stick with us. You know, would God that we could all have that kind of experience where we would bond with Jesus, fix our eyes on Jesus, and stay with Jesus that way. Well, we ended up adopting a little duck. Actually, our, our friends at camp with us had some ponds and some other ducks, and they adopted the little duck. But, um, you know, it reminds me that the Bible tells us, as we have borne the image, and this is 1 Corinthians 15, 49, as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, Adam, we all sin because of the sin of Adam, much more shall we bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus. Now, man was originally created in the image of God, but through sin, that image has been distorted. But we can experience a transformation as we become Christians and we daily are fixing our eyes on Jesus and looking at Jesus we are being little by little transformed into the image of Christ. And we become more and more like him. And you can read here in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
It's, it's a new image that God puts upon us. Now, the Bible tells us that we should be imitators of Christ. You read there in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God, dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved and given himself for us and offered us a sacrifice, offered himself as a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. You know, it's, uh, it's funny sometimes you see uh, kids, if you have two or three kids in the family, as we did, that the little boys are copying their brothers. And a matter of fact, sometimes one of our boys would come to us and be exasperated and say, he's copying me. The little one go, he's copying me. <laughs> and it's like, that can be annoying. But they really do. They try to copy each other. We're always going through life wondering, how am I supposed to act? I, you know, sometimes you'll see some young person and they, they've got a bone through their nose and, you know, uh, 20 earrings in their ears and they've got a mohawk and a purple hairdo. And I can almost guarantee they did not wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to shave my head in a mohawk and dye it purple and yellow and, you know, start piercing my nose and they ended up seeing someone else do it. They ended up seeing some of their role models do it. And that's why it's really important that we pick our role models very carefully. Jesus must be the hero of every Christian. And more of our young people need to spend more time with Jesus. I remember Karen and I one time went uh, to someone's house after church. They invited us home for dinner in Northern California. And I vividly remember that they not only invited us, they invited some other guests from the church. There were just a handful of us. And so, but there was one gentleman there that I thought to myself, he looks a little bit like Elvis Presley. And, uh, you know, I know something about that because uh, on a couple of occasions I met Elvis. My mother used to write songs for Elvis Presley. And uh, I remember she brought me with her to a press conference with Elvis Presley. That was very interesting. I wouldn't forget. Uh, but uh, this gentleman told us a story during dinner. I don't know how it came up, but we we're saying, you know, you know, where are you coming from? He said, well, I'll tell you, just I'll protect his identity. He said, yeah, my name's Joe. And he said, uh, I'm an Elvis Presley impersonator. And I said, oh, really? How did that happen? And he said, well, he said, you know, when I was a young man, I used to go to this church. And I was a Christian. But, you know, during your teenage years, you're sort of looking for identity. And I just didn't feel like I knew who I was. And one day I went to an Elvis Presley concert in California. And he saw the girls were screaming and swooning and throwing their clothes at Elvis and and uh, he thought, wow, <laughs> he said, I'd like a girlfriend. I'm going to be more like Elvis Presley. Something clicked, and he just went through that, that uh, little bonding, uh, imprinting experience. He said, that's going to be my idol. And this man really idolized Elvis. Joe told us, he said, you know, I went home. And he said, I started to uh, imitate Elvis. He said, I went to Elvis Presley concerts whenever I could. I got all of Elvis's records. Uh, when his movies came out, I went to his movies and I would sit in the theater and watch his movies over and over and 
quietly mumble to myself some of his famous phrases and try to imitate him and sound like him and walk like him and talk like him. So I bought a guitar and I learned to play it. He said, I already had some natural music abilities. So he said, I got to where I could sing all of his songs the way he sang them. He said, I wallpapered my room with Elvis Presley posters. He said, I dyed my hair black. So at this point, his parents were a little concerned, but there was no stopping him. And he said, I just, uh, he said, I went to any kind of Elvis event, any kind of uh, autograph signing. He said, I was fan number one. And uh, he said, it got where just with my friends, I'd do an Elvis impersonation, and they thought, wow, that's really good. And they'd laugh, and I found it entertained them. So I did this for several years, and then he said, finally, Elvis died. And he said, I was an Elvis impersonator while Elvis was still alive. He said, when Elvis died, he said, I was one of the first ones that went to Las Vegas as an Elvis Presley impersonator, and he was making a lot of money impersonating Elvis. And then others saw that, that you know, it was a successful career, and uh, they began to do it. Uh, when we met him, he was in his 50s, and he was getting to be a little bit of a paunchy Elvis, and he realized he couldn't do it forever. He said, but you know, I, I just came back from Japan where they gave me $10,000 for one concert, Elvis Presley impersonation. And uh, <clears throat> he said, now, he says, you know, I'm at that point in my life where I realize I can't do this much longer. And he said, I've spent my whole life trying to be somebody that basically self-destructed. You know, Elvis, because of his fame and his life and the drugs and the excess, uh, he basically died, killed himself. Uh, it wasn't suicide, but just his lifestyle killed himself. And he said, I'm really beginning to think I need to go back to my roots, but I don't know who I am. And I thought, how sad that this man had spent his life dedicated his life to imitating somebody that was really the wrong hero. And you know, it's interesting that Elvis started out singing in church, but uh, he became sort of deluded by Hollywood and, and brought off track because of all of that. Now, I never forgot Joe's story because I thought to myself, what if Christians would do with Jesus what Joe did with Elvis? What if we would imitate Christ? What if we would fix our eyes on him, surround ourselves with his word, listen to his voice, go to church, and go to prayer meeting, and, and uh, study the great missionaries that have modeled the life of Christ, and surround ourselves with all things Christ. That's what Paul did. Paul said, I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And through fixing his eyes on Jesus, Paul was transformed, and basically he became like Christ. And that really is the goal for each of us. This is what happened with the other apostles as well. Here's a, a great quote from the book, Desire of Ages, and this is page 295. Day by day, in contrast with John's own violent spirit, this is the apostle John, he beheld the tenderness and forbearance of Jesus. It happened on a day-by-day -day basis. It doesn't happen all at once. And he learned lessons of humility and patience. He opened his heart to the divine influence, and he became not only a hearer, but a doer of the Savior's words. Self was hid in Christ. He learned to wear the yoke of Christ and to bear his burden. He was transformed by beholding. Someone said, in many ways, we act our way into Christ's likeness more than we pray our way into Christ's likeness. That's a quote from Maxine Dunham. 
is that sometimes, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they say you fake it till you make it. And you, you say, I am going to try to, even if it doesn't feel natural, I am going to do my best to do what I know the right thing is, even if I feel like doing something else. And you keep believing that you're uh, a delivered person, that you are victorious. And in some ways in the Christian life, you've got to say, you know, I'm going to act like Christ even though I don't feel like it. It may not be natural. I'm going to do the right thing even if I'm doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Because he says do it, I'm going to do it. Someone said, well, shouldn't you want to give cheerfully out of love? Well, you should want to give cheerfully. But if you're not giving cheerfully, you shall still do it as a grump. <laughs> you should do the right thing because you know it's the right thing. And you know what? In the process, sometimes things change and it becomes the right thing. Now, with these principles in mind, that we are changed by beholding, our, our souls are like a photographic plate. You know, the way the old pictures would work is they'd have this chemical uh, slathered plate and they would quickly expose it to an image of light. <clears throat> and in that fraction of a moment where it was exposed to that image of light, it would capture the image. Our souls uh, begin to model what we look at. Just like when you aim your digital camera at something, you press the button, it's picking up the image. That's happening to us all the time. We are being transformed little by little by what we behold. It doesn't all happen at once. Now, with that in mind, how important is it for us to choose carefully what we behold? We are living in a society where people are being bombarded by a blizzard of images more than any other time in history. If you go back 100 years for the first 5,000 years of human history before the introduction of television, it, you know, when people saw a painting or a photograph, it was an exceptional thing. But to have images and stories constantly bombarding their minds, the only way they were able to do that is by imagining things as they read. But now we're living in a time where everywhere you look, new images are flashing on the screens of our minds and they are transforming us. This is especially concerning when you consider that uh, kids today are constantly being exposed to media. Uh, on the TV, on the computer, on the iPad, and even more is the omnipresent phone. They're watching, watching, watching. What are they watching? Uh, they're watching some things that are ridiculous and YouTubes and might be watching sinister cartoons. People get addicted to games of war and killing and they're playing online with other people of all different parts of the world. These games that usually have to do with hunting something down and shooting it. And uh, what kind of effect does that have? I'm always amazed when I, I see the, the, the violence that breaks out in society and the, the government officials think, well, we need new laws. And I'm, you know, I'm not trying to take any kind of position on gun rights or gun laws, but I really do believe that the problem is a moral problem. That what's happening is, what is making a person want to kill others? Well, when kids spend so much time watching violence, we end up becoming what we look at. We become like what we look at. That's why in the Bible, the commandment regarding idolatry was so offensive. Because when you create images of God, especially if you've got you know, images of God and your God looks like a cow or a frog or some, you know, an elephant or a multi-armed monster, 
as they have in some of the Hindu faiths, then uh, what does that do to your concept of God? Or if your concept of God is even a porcelain image of Jesus on the cross or a little vignette or statue of Mary on the dashboard, it belittles the greatness and the awesomeness of God. That's why idolatry is forbidden, because we are changed by what we behold. When we continue to look at something, we are worshiping it. And as we continue to look at these images, whether it's a, a binge watching some program where they're glorifying death and sex and violence and dishonesty, that's going to affect us. You know, in my mind, one of the most deadly influences in our modern society is uh, media. It's the, the programs that people are watching, whether they're, you know, little YouTube shorts or they're, you know, long epics or people are watching series of programs. Most of it is filled with things that the Bible condemns, and that affects us. And that should be very concerning because we are not to be transformed by the world. We are to be converting the world, but instead the world is converting the church, often through media. Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We need to be letting the word of God transform us instead of the world transforming us. The Kaiser Family Foundation, they do research in these areas, and they said the danger of television and video to shape our thinking is just extreme right now. According to a recent study, the number of sexual scenes on television has doubled since 1998, and it's much more explicit than it has ever been. Families spend more time with TV, an average or just over seven hours a day, than, just over seven hours a day, more than they do anything else besides working and sleeping. Another survey revealed children and teens are spending an increasing amount of time using new media, like the computers, the internet, video games, cell phones, while they're not cutting back on the time they spend with the old media, like the TV. So they're spending more and more time with these worldly influences that are out there. Now, you know, we're using media right now, hopefully for a good thing. A media in itself, television or radio or a cell phone, is not evil. Amazing Facts is always trying to produce new programs or DVDs or documentaries that will lead people to Christ and doing it with some success too. So just like a book by itself is not bad, it's what's in the book. A radio isn't evil, that radio technology can be great good if you're broadcasting the truth. So it's not the technology, but let's face it, the majority of the programming that people are looking at and watching and listening to is not Christian. And one of the most important things a Christian can do is make a conscious decision that I am not going to continue to fill my mind with evil influences. We are changed by beholding. This is why we want to see Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Look here in uh, Psalms 101 verse 3. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. You know, that's a covenant that we need to make. Job says in um, chapter 31 of Job verse 1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I behold a young woman? And if it's a woman, why should I behold a man? And this would, would speak very directly to the epidemic of pornography that is going through society. 
I understand one third of all video downloads is of explicit sexual content or pornographic in nature. It's just an epidemic in our society. And we all need to say with Job, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will not do that. You know, we used to teach the children the little song, be careful little ears what you hear, be careful little hands what you do, be careful little eyes what you see. For our Father up above is looking down with love. Therefore, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. This is one of the ways we put on the armor of God is we make daily decisions to choose what we're going to take into our minds because it has a profound impact on our soul. I think that in eternity, we're going to be shocked by the, how the destiny of millions was determined by little daily decisions to watch or not watch something, to listen or not listen to something. And uh, because they knew that it was defiling their soul and they would not listen to the wrong thing. And those who choose to listen to the right thing, making conscious choices, um, just this week, I'm not trying to set myself up as an example, but I deal with this every day like everybody else. I listen to audiobooks. And lately, Karen and I have been listening to some really good audiobooks of great missionaries, and we find it's inspiring. And on more than one occasion, I look at their sacrifice and their love and their service, and I just broke down and cried when I thought, oh, Lord, I want to love you more. I want to have that kind of sacrificial love. Well, the, the little... Uh, application that we use for listening to free books. They said, you've got special credit, and we're offering you these free books. And so they were offering some other free books, and I said, well, I'm not interested in that, that, that. Well, here was one on history. And it wasn't really religious, but it was history, and I like history. I thought, I'll get some sermon illustrations. I started to listen to this book about uh, World War II and, and uh, what the Nazis did in the Holocaust camps, and it was all dreadful. And, and you know, I just started seeing something was happening in my heart. I was just feeling dark and depressed for days, listening to how horrific it was, and I thought, I can't listen to that anymore. I, and I started, I went back and said, I'm gonna now listen to Amy Carmichael, missionary, and because I saw it was having an impact on me. In my car when I'm driving, I preset a number of stations. I have two or three Christian stations. I've got a news station and I've got uh, a classic music station. Karen doesn't like it. She says it sounds like elevator music. But uh, you know, it's thinking music for me. And so, but whenever I'm driving down the road, we've got um, the spirit of prophecy on a little USB. We've got thousands of, <laughs> thousands of hours of listening on just a little USB we plug in. We drive down the road and uh, going on a trip and we'll listen to an entire book, Acts of the Apostles or something. And it it influences us. You can feel it. So friends, I, I'd appeal to you, be very careful what you listen to. Proverbs 4:23. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the spring, out of it spring the issues of life. Put away from you all, your you a deceitful mouth, and preserve lips far and perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead, and let your eyelids look right before you. And uh, and here's a powerful quote. I've taken my, my Bible verses and put them on my notes here. Isaiah 33, verse 14. Who among us shall dwell with devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Meaning the glory of God, the, that fire of God. 
He who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, who shuts his eyes from seeing evil, he will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Stop our ears from hearing of evil. Shut our eyes of hearing of uh, evil. So uh, not hearing bloodshed, not looking at evil, making that conscious choice to decide what we're going to look at. And it's not just choosing not to look at the wrong thing, but we want to make sure we choose to look at the right thing. It's like Jesus said when he talked to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Christ said, if I am lifted up from the earth, John 12, 32, I will draw all peoples to myself. And in Zechariah 12, 10, it says, we will look upon him who was pierced. We fix our eyes upon Jesus who was pierced and will mourn for him as one mourns for our only son. We look and we're transformed by the love of God as we look at him. See, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Where do we see his goodness? At the cross. It's the love of God that we must first see. We love him because he first loved us. Where do we best see his love for us? It's at the cross. And so we look up at Jesus. We fix our eyes on him. And this has a transformational uh, effect on us. The, the story that Jesus is talking about in the Old Testament when the people had been complaining about the manna and God allowed a plague of serpents to go in among them, venomous, deadly serpents. And many of them were bitten by these serpents and they were slowly dying from the toxic venom. And God instructed Moses. They prayed and said, Lord, we're sorry. And Moses was told, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up where everyone can see, and those who look will live. Now, what does that mean? Well, for a Hebrew, when they had sheep and goats and livestock and snakes would injure them, if they ever saw a venomous snake, they would kill it. But you don't reach down with your hands and grab a venomous snake. I used to live in the hills up in the desert and I had a snake stick uh, by my cave up there. And if I killed a snake, I did not grab it with my hand. I picked it up with a stick because they're very tenacious and they might surprise you when you think they're dead and they're not. And I took it off and I buried it. So for them, a, a snake up on a stick represented a defeated serpent. And, but it may still be dangerous. And Jesus on the cross, he took all the venom of the serpent in himself that he might provide the antidote in his blood. And they were to look in faith that God was going to defeat the power of the serpent. And uh, that look of faith healed them. And we must look to Jesus. In looking to Christ is where we find the healing. One day, the children of Israel, after coming out of Egypt, they were attacked from behind by the Amalekites. And they, they won the battle as long as they could see Moses up on the hill where he was visible with his, his arms outstretched, interceding for them. As long as they could see Moses interceding for them, they were victorious. When Moses' arms got tired and his arms went down, then they began to lose the battle. And so then Aaron and Hur helped Moses lift up his arms. And as long as they saw Moses interceding for him, them with God, they remembered God, they fought uh, valiantly, and they won the battle.
We must remember that our Moses, Jesus, is at the right hand of the throne of God. He is his nail-pierced hands spread out. And we, by faith, must see that he is there. He's paid for our sins. He loves us more than his own life. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. He's interceding for you and that he has defeated the serpent. When we look at him lifted up, as we behold Christ like that, the Bible tells us that's the key to our victory. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. How do we lay aside our sins and the weight and uh, run that race with diligence? By looking unto Jesus, by lifting our eyes to Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus, and by beholding him, we are transformed. Friends, that's how we get ready for Jesus' second coming. That's how we witness to the world around us, is keep our eyes on Christ and be like him. Let me pray with you as we close. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you for the simple truth in your word that as we look unto Christ, that we will become like our Savior. I pray it's the decision of each one watching right now that will lay aside those things that are distracting us, the things that are influencing us to be more like the world, and we'll fix our eyes on Jesus and become more like him. I pray, Lord, that we can make a covenant with our ears and with our eyes to hear and to watch those things that will be edifying for our souls. Bless each person. Help us to know how to apply these things in our lives. And we thank you and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, friends.